ask you to open with me again to the book of Exodus and chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4. Today is Harvest Sunday, and this is the day that we set aside each year to remind ourselves about the importance of evangelism, the importance of global missions, and our impetus for that comes from Matthew chapter 9 and these words. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So where do we stand right now concerning that harvest? According to the Joshua Project, the world's population right now is around 7,178,000,000 people. These 7 billion people can be seen as grouped into 16,629 different people groups. So 7 billion people, around 17,000 people groups. These are groups of people who share the same customs, who share the same culture. They live in the same country and they speak the same language. And of these close to 17,000 people groups, close to 7,000 are considered unreached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Those 7,000 people groups represent 3 billion people. 3 billion of the 7 billion on our planet are considered by the Joshua Project to be unreached. Strikingly, 97% of that unreached group, 97% of those 3 billion unreached peoples live in the 1040 window. That's the window between 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude north of the equator. This is the region of the world where people are predominantly Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, animist, or Jewish. And so there is still much of this world that needs to be reached. The harvest is still plentiful, and we still need more laborers. There are billions of people still walking this planet who are dying and going to hell. And we as a church must be committed to the long-term support of global missions. The building of the kingdom of God is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And therefore, we must not allow ourselves to grow weary. We must not allow ourselves to drop out of this work. This year, we're continuing to support Cornelia Kiriluta and the work of the gospel at Word of Truth Church in Bucharest, Romania. We're continuing to support Drew Most and his family as they return to Cameroon in January to continue their Bible translation work. We are going to continue to support full-time missionaries through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And next summer, if you would like, you will have the opportunity to go with some of us to Tolcha, Romania, 
as we bring medical care, reading glasses, children's activities, and especially the gospel of Jesus Christ to Romanians and gypsies in the villages of eastern Romania. We as a church need to maintain our commitment to global missions. The harvest is still plentiful and the laborers are still few. What about closer to home? What about here in eastern North Carolina? Well, I think if we try and give an honest assessment of eastern North Carolina, we can say at least three things. First, I think we can say there are a lot of Christians in eastern North Carolina. Compared to most other parts of the world, there are a lot of people in eastern North Carolina who know the gospel, who love Christ, who are committed to His cause. We certainly do not live in an unreached part of the world. Bibles are readily available in our language. Faithful gospel-preaching churches are not as numerous as you might think, but they are here and their number is increasing. We must not fail on this Thanksgiving week to give thanks to God for the work of the gospel here in eastern North Carolina and the numbers of people who know Christ here in the area in which we live. Second, though there are a lot of Christians in eastern North Carolina, we must also say immediately there are a lot more people who are not Christians in eastern North Carolina. For every true believer living a life of following Christ, there are several more that are either disconnected from Christianity altogether, or they are Christian in name only. For every gospel-preaching church, there are still several that are failing to preach the gospel. There are many people in eastern North Carolina who never hear any preaching at all. They never even step foot in a church. Every day we live and work among people for whom Jesus is not precious to them. The harvest in eastern North Carolina is still plentiful. And the laborers are still few. And then third, I think we can conclude that overall, our area is becoming less Christian and not more so. Yes, there are some wonderful works of God taking place in our region of the world. And yes, I do think that churches are becoming healthier and more faithful. I do think we've seen a resurgence of sound doctrine and respect for the Bible in eastern North Carolina. But these gains for the kingdom of Christ are being overshadowed by our losses. More children are growing up in our area today away from the church and outside of the church than in generations past. Secularism is capturing the hearts and the minds of our neighbors. Triviality, wasting one's life away on things that don't really seem to matter, I think is more pervasive in our day than at any other point in the history of the world. It isn't that people in our area are rejecting the Christian message. It's that they are not even having that kind of conversation anymore. And therefore, we have a real challenge before us. Though the gospel can be easily found in eastern North Carolina today by those who long for it, there are many who do not long for it. And we are not promised that the gospel will be as readily available in this region of the world in the next generation as it is today. 
the gospel can be lost in just one generation. We could see in a generation or two other nations sending missionaries to Rocky Mount just as we are now sending missionaries to Europe where the gospel used to be so strong and so pervasive. Mount Hermon, above all, we need to remember that as we worship in this room this morning, within a few miles of where we are worshiping, there is a radius of more than a thousand people who are on their way to the experience of God's righteous judgment in hell. Our God is a good and gracious and merciful God. And He is worthy of the love and the trust and the adoration of every person and every home that surrounds this church building. Jesus is worthy of the praise of every lost person in this world. And so for the sake of Christ and because we love our neighbors... We need to be passionate about getting the gospel to as many people as well as we can. Now, as I come to preach one more time on Exodus 4, verses 10 through 17, I am working with this assumption. And it's the assumption that this passage is not just about Moses. Moses is not the only person who has ever been commanded by God to speak for him. Yes, Moses was different from us. He was called to be a prophet. He was called to speak infallible words from God. We are not prophets in the sense that Moses was, but we too have a message to deliver. We too have a word from God that needs to be spoken to the lost and dying people around us. And just like Moses, we are called to be courageous and we are called to open up our mouths We are called to speak. Why am I so sure that the speaking of the gospel is not just the preacher's job? Why am I so sure that speaking God's message to others is a job that God has given to every Christian in this room? Two passages. Number one, God speaking through Paul. Number two, God speaking through Peter. Through Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.31 and 11.1, Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, Paul has just been writing for two chapters about how he is willing to give up his rights, how he is willing to sacrifice and be humbled in order to see people saved. He talks about his commitment to putting no needless obstacle between people and the gospel of Christ. He sums his his life up as, I'm doing whatever I can under God to see people saved. And then he says, to regular everyday Christians in Corinth, to moms and dads, husbands and wives, slaves and masters, all kinds of people in that church. And he says to them all, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He wasn't writing to pastors. He wasn't writing to deacons. He was writing to every Christian and to the entire church body. And he says, imitate my evangelistic lifestyle. Imitate my evangelistic fervor. He said, I am imitating Christ. 
the greatest evangelist who ever lived, imitate me in imitating Christ. And then there's what God says through Peter. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense when, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter commands everyday Christians to always be ready to give a defense, a reason for the hope that is in us. And the only way we're going to be able to give that defense is using words. We cannot simply live Christianly and think that our behavior will bring people to Jesus. Our behavior can make them want to hear the gospel, but they still must hear the gospel. It is a message that must be spoken. Conversations must happen. Putting those two passages together we see that we are to live an evangelistic lifestyle of love, putting other people first, putting their needs first. But if we're living that way, we should expect gospel conversations to happen. Those opportunities will come to us. And when those opportunities come, we must not tremble and be afraid. We must be courageous and we must joyfully open up our mouths and share the most amazing truths in the world, the truths that have changed us. Now, Herman, we have good news. We have good news. And we ought to share it. And yet, how often do we find ourselves paralyzed by that great enemy of the Christian, fear. Uh, There is a good kind of fear, right? There's this holy, reverential fear of God that ought to be in every one of us. That, That fear is the beginning of wisdom. We want that kind of fear. But there is also a kind of fear that is rooted in pride and in unbelief and in belittling God and making our circumstances seem bigger than they are. This is a fear that is straight from the pit of hell. And when it gets its tentacles wrapped around us, it paralyzes us. And we find ourselves unwilling to speak to people who need to hear what we have to say. What does this look like? Although it comes in many forms, one common form is that of doubting our own ability. We begin to say, I'm just not a good communicator. What if I say the wrong things? What if I mess up? Shouldn't I leave it to the professionals to speak the most important message in the world? Well, we find something like that coming out of Moses' mouth as God calls him to go and to speak. God says, Moses, you go to Pharaoh in Egypt and you speak the words that he needs to hear. And three times Moses protested. And now in this passage, we read it last week, we're going to read it again today. He protests two more times. So let's see the fourth protest again. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Exodus 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Is that your response to God's call on your life to speak the gospel to others? 
Do you say, God, I know that people around me need the gospel. I just don't speak well. Maybe you think about how important the gospel message is and how it is worth more than all our lives put together. And you think, there is just no way that me and my stammering lips can do the gospel justice. By the way, if you feel that way, you're in good company. You're in good company. The greatest missionary of the Christian church was the Apostle Paul. Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. And yet, what was Paul's prayer request? that he continued to write to the churches that he sent letters to, when he said, here's my prayer request, here's how you can be praying for me. What did he ask? Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Pray also for me, that words may be given to me, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Or Colossians 4, beginning in verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Think about this. The Apostle Paul knew that even he needed help when it came to speaking the gospel clearly and boldly. But did he allow his weaknesses? Did he allow his fear that he might not be clear or that he might not be bold? Did he allow that to paralyze him from sharing the gospel? Just the opposite. In fact, he boasted in his weakness. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 9. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear that? When I am weak, then I am strong. When you know that you're inadequate, when you know that you you don't have all the right words to say, and you know, God, I don't know what to say to change that loved one's heart, that's where you ought to be. That's where you're supposed to be when you go and speak. If you think, I've got this evangelism thing down. I've I've heard revival preachers talk that way. Right? Get me in a room with a hundred people, I'll have ten of them saved. Right? That's the person you ought to be afraid of. The Christian who says, I don't know how to say it well. I don't know how, what, what I can say to change that person's mind and change that person's heart. All I know is I've got to say something. God, give me words. That's where you want to be. Jerem Bars says this, Paul was perhaps the greatest evangelist apart from the Lord that there has ever been. Yet Paul knew that he needed to ask for prayer to be clear. And he knew that he needed God to give him courage. If this was true for the apostle to the Gentiles, how much more will it be true to us? We should gladly acknowledge our anxiety and nervousness 
about our abilities, our embarrassment, our fear, even our sense of shame when we try to tell someone what it means to be a Christian. Humility about ourselves is the best place to begin as we think about our responsibility to share the gospel. Jesus opened his Sermon on the Mount with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you feel that you lack confidence to talk about Jesus with others, remember these words of Paul. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You and I are called to be clay vessels in the hands of God. Not golden vessels. Not silver vessels. Not vessels that are already well put together and have it all. No, we're called to be fragile clay vessels in the hand of God and He through us will save people. It is God that saves people. God is the great evangelist. And so be like an empty vessel. Be filled by His Spirit, by believing God's promises, and just step out in obedience. Open your mouth with that cousin over Thanksgiving dinner who knows he's not living the way he should be living. And nobody in the family has had the courage to just speak to him about it. Open your mouth and pray for God to bless. Justin is going to make the relationship awkward. I just I don't know what it's going to be like if, if we do that. If we, if we go there, it's going to be strange. Let it be strange. Trust God. Trust Him. And He will do what is right. Moses protested in verse 10, God, I don't speak well. I'm not eloquent. Look at how God responds. Let's begin in verse 10 again. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? That a great answer. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Do you hear what God is saying in His answer to Moses? God is saying to Moses, you have your eyes on the wrong person. You're looking at yourself. You're seeing your own weakness. Moses, you are weak. But stop looking at yourself and your lack of power. Fix your eyes on me. God emphasizes His power to Moses. God is the one who made man's mouth. The mouth was God's idea. The mouth is God's invention. And do you think that He doesn't have the power to do with a person's mouth whatever He wills? Proverbs 16, verse 1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. There has never been a word uttered in the history of this world that hasn't been uttered in accordance with the sovereign purposes of God. Not one. He accomplishes His purposes through our words, and not one word is uttered that is not according to His plan. 
Words come from the heart. It is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And God holds our hearts in His hands and He can turn our hearts wherever He will. Do not doubt that if you give yourself to obedience to God, He will take care of your mouth just like He can take care of every other part of your being. Over the years, I've, I've had to deal with a lot of conflict resolution. Right? Matthew 18 moments. The hard word that needs to be said. And I can't tell you how many times, and I'm a shower thinker. Are you a shower thinker? I'm a shower thinker, which is why Crystal didn't have any hot water this morning because I'm in the shower and, oh, I forgot to wash my hair. So, like I really need it, right? So anyway, I'm a shower thinker and I'm worried about conflict resolution and I rehearse in my mind, how am I going to say this? How, what's the most gentle way? How do I make it clear? Why? And, I, I, and I, I put this script together in my head. Can I tell you how many times when I finally came face to face with that person, it was a totally different script that came out of my mouth. Because Even though I had rehearsed that one a hundred times, the conversation went different than I expected. Things went another way. And God was in control. And He was accomplishing what He had purposed to accomplish. Let us learn to trust God with every part of our lives, including our mouths, and giving us the words to say in the right moment. How powerful is God? God is the one who gives speech. God is the one who takes speech away. God has the power to make men mute. God has the power to give hearing or to take hearing, to give sight or to take sight. Why does God say that? Why does He point out that He's the God of the mute and the deaf? His whole point is this. I am fully in control of the five senses. The five senses of your body do my bidding. I hold them under my sway. So dear loved one, when you go to speak to someone, when you go to speak to your friend, when you go to speak to your coworker, you are not alone. The God who is sovereign over your five senses is with you and His Spirit is in you and He is ministering to your heart, working through you. And He will give you the words to say. What is the application for us? We must never use any weakness in us as an excuse for not sharing the gospel. We must never use any weakness in us as an excuse for not sharing the gospel. God has said He will be with us. And we already know what we need to say because it's the very truths you believe that make you a Christian. You know that God is good and holy and sovereign. You know that you're a sinner. You know that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You know that you're saved by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You you know what to say. It's just having the willingness and the boldness to go say it. You can share your story. You can share why those truths matter to you. Uh, As we saw in our Gospel of John group a few weeks ago, you can take John 3.16. John 3.16 has every element of the Gospel in it. Just read John 3.16 and talk about what the words mean. You're sharing the Gospel. Don't be afraid. God will equip you for every calling that He brings into your life, even when it's Speaking to crazy Uncle Freddy, right? Even when it's speaking to that loved one in your family that you know is just running as hard as they can the wrong way. Even when it's that awkward conversation with someone that you work alongside all year long. He will care for you 
as you care for that person's soul. So Moses has offered up these four protests to God, and each one of these protests has really been a cover for what Moses was truly feeling. The bottom of the, bottom of it all, Moses just didn't want to do this. Remember verse 13? See it again? Verse 13. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Dear friends, is this not exactly how our wicked hearts feel sometimes? We see that fellow church member that needs attention and care, and we are so busy, we have so much on our plate, and what do we say? Lord, send someone else. We see visitors coming in among us, right? And every once in a while we have visitors that come in, and as soon as it's over, we know they're going to beeline out, you know, because they're nervous, they don't know these people, and so they're not going to hang around, they're going to head out. And we know we ought to speak to them, but we're not very social, maybe we're kind of shy. What do we pray? Lord, raise up so-and-so to go speak to those visitors, right? Send someone else. The pastor starts preaching about 3 billion people and 7,000 people groups who are still unreached with the gospel. And what do we often pray? Lord, send someone else. Mount Hermon, mark my words. I do say this with love. God may very well send someone else, but that will not excuse your disobedience. And that will not excuse an unbelieving, unsubmissive heart when God has called you to something. Every time God draws your attention to some act or deed that you can and indeed should do for Him, He is drawing your attention to an opportunity for spiritual growth. Every time God draws your attention for a need for you to meet or a person for you to talk to, He is pointing you in the path of holiness, the path of happiness, the the path of a deeper relationship with Him. And as long as we keep praying, Lord, please send somebody else, we will remain baby Christians, immature Christians, unhelpful in the cause of Christ. Babies, they receive, they receive, they receive, they receive. They don't ever give back. That's not where we want to stay as Christians. If you continue to shun God's calls for obedience in your life, your heart will harden. Ultimately, sin will lead you away from the living God. Disciples of Jesus Christ are marked by this, their willingness to step out in faith and obey. Oh, the great benefits that come to those who are quick to answer God's call. And so you see that fellow Christian in need, and you act, and you love, and you serve. You see some need in the church not being met, and you you jump to meet it. Nobody else may even know that you're going to do it, but you're going to meet that need. You see God bring that gospel opportunity your way, and you say, now is my chance. Those that say, like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me, will find that they grow the most. They mature the most. Their relationship with God becomes the deepest and the strongest. And they become the greatest blessing to others around them in their lives.
How did God respond to Moses' protest? Lord, send somebody else. We'll look again. Verse 13. He said, O Lord, O my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And so how does God respond to Moses' unwillingness to go? Well, first God becomes angry. And rightfully so. We can be sure that there is a real fatherly anger that is directed towards us when we refuse to heed God's commands. This is not wrath. right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a real corrective disciplinary love motivated anger from our Father towards us. The Puritans used to call it the displeasure of God. That sounds nicer, right? The displeasure of God towards His children when they refuse to obey. If you continue to protest against the commands of God in your life, do not be surprised when expressions of God's displeasure begin to appear. Second, we see here that God is amazingly patient and kind with His servant Moses. This is the fifth protest, and it's the worst. He's been building, and yet what does God do? For Moses' own reassurance, God calls his brother Aaron out of Egypt. In fact, as best as we can tell, the very moment that God is having this conversation with Moses at the burning bush, way down in Egypt, God is speaking to Aaron and saying, Aaron, go get on the road. It's time to go meet your brother Moses. Later, we will see a visible picture of Aaron as a fellow worker and encourager to Moses as Aaron and Joshua hold Moses' hands up in battle so that Israel will be victorious. God is going to bring Moses a helper. Mount Hermon, we are in the mission of pointing people to Christ together. God does not call you to the work of evangelism alone. He has not called you to support the work of global missions alone. He calls us together. And we are to encourage one another and help one another. Let us lean upon one another. Let us find courage and comfort in one another's words and in one another's prayers. You know you have that awkward Christmas party with so-and-so coming up and, and you don't know the words to say, talk to your brothers and sisters. What can they say? What, what, what's happened with them? What can you learn from them? What can they say to give you courage? And as we see ourselves spurred on to greater personal evangelism through one another. Let us praise God that He is so patient with us and that He is so merciful towards us. Very quickly, as a way of closing, I want to spur us all on in this work by mentioning four ways to fan the flames of evangelistic zeal. And I'm just going to mention them. Four ways to fan the flames of evangelistic zeal in your 
heart. I wanted to end on a practical note. So here they are. Number one, meditate on the gospel. First and foremost, anytime you are feeling blah concerning evangelism, take time to pray, take time to read the scripture and think about the gospel. Think about what Christ did for you. Think about the cross. Think about the hell that Christ has saved you from. And think about the heaven that Christ has saved you for. And see if it doesn't make you want to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, consider your place in God's sovereign plan. God has you where you are for a reason. Who are the people that you are around each week? Consider the unbelievers in your life, especially those that you see regularly. What might God be doing by having you interact with that person on a regular basis? Might it be that God has placed you where you are because He is working through you for the salvation of that soul? Are you making the most of that relationship? Remember the providence of God and look around in your own life, in your own relationships, and see how you can be useful to the Lord. Number three, hear the testimonies of others. There are few things that get me more excited about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ than hearing the stories of what Jesus has done in the lives of others. Let me suggest that it should be normal for us. When we're in each other's homes, when we're just hanging out together, we should often share our stories with one another. Especially if there's folks in this church who haven't heard your testimony. Share your testimony. What an encouragement it is. I got to speak this week with a lady who, her husband came home after about eight years of marriage and said, Honey, I've had three affairs I don't love you anymore. Go find you a job because you've got to start taking care of yourself. I want a divorce. And that lady shared with me how she had walked an aisle when she was six years old and she thought she was a Christian. But it wasn't until that day she knew what desperation really felt like. And she said she fell on her knees and said, Lord, I can't do this. You have got to give me what I need to make it through this situation. And she shared with me how Christ not only drew her to himself, but brought restoration to that marriage. They've been married for over two decades now, have six children. You hear a story like that, it, it makes you want to share the gospel. People need the Lord. Remember the old, the old song, the old Steve Green song? People need the Lord. And it ought to encourage us to share that word. And then finally, if you're, if you're scared, if you're nervous, what an age we live in where there's so many tools to equip you and encourage you. Just read the sermons of Spurgeon. They're free online. They're free on your Kindle. They're free on your iPhone. Whatever device you have, Spurgeon is free. And he, you can read him and, and just his evangelistic zeal just pervades everything. Read The Heart of Evangelism by Jerem Bars, my favorite book on evangelism. It's sitting, I'm pointing not to the parking lot, I'm pointing to the foyer because that book's sitting right there. Um, who read it? I think Deborah read it. Ask her about it. She talked about how much she loved that book. It's, it's a great book. Read that book. Read The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. Short read. You can read that one in an hour, right? God gives you ways to feel more equipped. And so let us read things that will encourage us and help us in this work. If there are any in this room that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me plead with you now. Hell is real. 
and so is heaven. Your sins have separated you from God. But by renouncing your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Jesus has done everything necessary to give us peace with God. May all of us turn to Him and trust Him. Let us be baptized in His name if we have not. Let us be a part of a healthy church that preaches His Word. Jesus calls to every one of us in this room, man, woman, boy, girl, and He says, follow me. Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that we will. Let's pray.